Dr. Stahl here. And in this podcast and all the podcasts, you're going to hear from Workplace Suicide Prevention. We talk about hard things. We talk about suicide. And sometimes there's stories in here that might be activating and they might bring back memories or feelings or things that maybe you didn't plan on revisiting today. So if that's the case for you, we urge you, please take care of yourself. Your well-being is the most important thing. Hello and welcome to the second episode of the Workplace Suicide Prevention Podcast. This podcast is from the Workplace Special Interest Group of the International Association of Suicide Prevention. I'm your host, Dr. Sally Spencer-Thomas, and I'm so grateful to be part of this international community that's looking deeply at the questions of what are the root causes of suicide, how can we best support people in their pain and suffering, And also, how do we support people in their trauma and grief after suicide? In today's conversation, we continue our conversation around work-related suicide, work-related suicide. We're going to hear a very important story of how this showed up in China from one of our international preeminent researchers, Jenny Chang, and Professor Sarah Waters. So let's start off with you, Sarah. You've been on our podcast before, but please go ahead and reintroduce yourself. Where are you in the world and how are you connected to this conversation today? Thanks very much, Sally. And it's really great to be here to talk to you and to Jenny. So I'm professor of French studies at the University of Leeds. And my research for many years has focused on on the workplace and work in France as a way of sort of understanding what's happening more generally in society and and in politics. And then in the summer of 2009, the media began reporting on work-related suicides that were taking place in France Telecom. And I was both horrified and, and fascinated by this because it it, go, it went against everything I had learned about the workplace. Work is a is a, a site or a space that brings people into society. It it gives them a sense of identity, a, a sense of place, a sense of belonging. And I I just couldn't understand how things had got so bad that employees in that company would be driven to the desperate act of suicide. So that really was what started me on this journey. And I did a study of suicides at France Telecom and two other very large French companies. I studied lots of testimonial material. I looked at suicide notes. I looked at letters. I looked at legal documentation. And I've since gone on to look at what's happening internationally. And I've worked more recently on the UK. And in the UK, I'm part of the Hazards campaign, which is campaigning really to have work-related suicide recognised in legal terms so that it can be investigated properly and so that preventative measures can be put in place. So that's that's me. Yes, thank you so much for that introduction. And for those of you who haven't listened to the first podcast, in the first podcast, Sarah, myself, and Jorgen Galustrup, my co-chair of the Workplace Special Interest Group, we talk a little bit more about the France Telecom situation and the research, as well as defining work-related suicide. So if you haven't listened to that podcast, go back and listen to that first. It might give you some context. But today we're going to be talking about 
the impact of the globalized workforce, uh, deteriorating workplace conditions around psychosocial hazards that Sarah was just talking about, and how these things are related to work-related suicides. And so again, our international guest here is Jenny. Jenny, please go ahead and introduce yourself. Thank you so much, Sally and Sarah. It's my great honor to join this episode. My name is Jenny, Jenny Chen. I'm an associate professor in sociology at the Hong Kong Polytechnic University. And I also volunteer for the research committee on labor movements of the International Sociological Association. For more than 10 years now, since my PhD, I've been working mainly on migrant workers in China. And the number is huge. There are more than 300 million of these rural to urban migrants who are mainly focusing on manufacturing service or construction jobs. And my main concern is really about their rights, union rights, as well as a solidarity network. So for 10 years work, including my PhD and my two co-authors and my great mentors, including Mark Sheldon and Poon Ai, so three of us finally complete a book, Dying for an iPhone. And I'm going to talk a lot more about the case, which is exactly on suicides and in the context of globalization, in particularly the global electronics production that is really related to all of us. Everyone is using our smartphone or a computer and iPad in joining this August. And therefore, I really think that the connection between global consumers and global producers, and they are the workers who are really closely related to our everyday politics as well. So my research and my actions, basically, they are inseparable. And I really hope that in the remaining time, we are going to get into the critical issue. And there are corporations and the state or trade union. What, what are the role of these major parties in shaping the working lives of these working people? Mm, thank you so much. It's very clear that your passion for this is strong. You're not just a researcher, you're an activist around this, an activist for, for global human rights. And, and that's such an important role that you play. I had a little bit of an experience working for one of these multinational companies, and they were based in Taiwan and Hong Kong. And I never knew about this issue about migrant workers and the devastating impacts that this has had on their well-being. So we'll talk more about that particular issue. Let me turn back to Sarah now for a little bit of theoretical context. You know, we touched a little bit last time about the French sociologist Emile Durkheim's ideas on the social phenomenon and how this impacts uh, suicide. But we've, at least in the United States, have gotten pretty far away from that idea and turned into a much more medicalized model. And I think you and I agree mm -hmm. that that's limited our ability to think about what are the root causes and our ability to prevent that. So can you share a little bit about your thoughts about how we've gotten away from maybe a more social understanding of suicide in some parts of the world and how going back to those really early ideas and theories about what drives suicidal despair can help us bring back to this idea of work-related suicide? Sure, absolutely. So I think precisely that the, the importance of Emile Durkheim's work is that he saw suicide as a socially determined phenomenon. 
he believed that the causes of suicide weren't located in the individual alone, but that we are all shaped by our social circumstances and that he saw suicide patterns varying in different countries at different points in time. So suicide is also historically specific. It, it, it happens in cycles. It's affected by what's happening in the economy. He linked suicides to the impact of economic crisis. And I suppose in, in doing so, he's opened up the means for us to do that today and to use the same methodological approach and to say, look, why are suicides happening at, at the present moment in distant cities, in distant companies at this present time within, within you know, a concentrated period? What is going on? And I think precisely my research project and Jenny's research project is to try to connect, I suppose, that, you know, very extreme and tragic individual event to 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 broader systems and to try to understand what's happening at a more macroeconomic level so that we can look at changing things so that we can make things better as you mentioned sally french theorists say that medicine has won the battle over the meaning of suicide you know nowadays suicide is very much treated as a, as a medical phenomenon it's explained in pathological terms it's linked to what's going on in, in someone's mind or in someone's personal life we can say that suicide suicide is of course has multiple causes and Individual factors are very, very, very important. However, when you close off the social and structural context, it becomes distorted. Because if you say that the causes of suicide are located within the individual, then you don't have to look at society. You don't have to think about, well, who might be responsible for the circumstances, for the living conditions, for the working conditions that shape that person's lives. So in a way, the medicalization of suicide has led to a situation where there isn't accountability and the, the causal chains aren't made. And I think it's vitally important that we reassert the social structural dimension of suicide, which precisely, and this is how Jenny and I met because I had been working on the France Telecom case and she was doing brilliant work on Foxconn. Both of these are companies that are uh, that work in the electronic sector that are linked to the mobile phone, which you know is very interesting. Both of them are linked to these. Jenny touched on this earlier. They're linked to this sort of this gadget and you know this commodity, which is very carefree and very slick and very aesthetic. And underneath that mobile phone, there are labor conditions which created enormous despair in these two companies and, and which resulted in, in spikes of suicide in both cases. Thank you for that wonderful description and really concise and to the point. Jenny, let's let's talk about your story, how you got into the Foxconn work and what you discovered. Where do you want to begin? 
Yes, it's been such a long research journey. It also dated back to 2010 when there were 18 young migrant workers at Foxconn. Well, actually, what is Foxconn? Foxconn is a Taiwanese corporation, but it is also the largest manufacturer based in China that is producing iPhones, iPads, and our game consoles, all sorts of uh, electronics products that we love so much. So it does catch me a big surprise. So in 2010, 18 young migrant workers, one by one, died by suicide. It's really a tragedy. I was still like more than 10 years ago feeling that when people were so desperate and they were just forever cannot see their parents and their children or their loved ones, it was a very difficult to understand experience from my own self as well. And while I'm reading the newspapers every day, the suicide number only went up. I then find out more in terms of the internet discussion. Some of the workers found that it would be better for them to just die to show that they have been ever alive at all. So this is a very desperate uh, sentiment, a kind of happiness. And uh, I then also borrowed just the uniform to get into the Foxconn factory and dormitory to interview workers, particularly young women workers, even though in Foxconn factory, indeed, two thirds of the workforce are young men, <laughs> only one third are young uh, girls who are all from the countryside. So based on these dialogue, I kind of understand much better the desire to sunk their roots in the city, but that is impossible. Very low wages, long working hours, and without much social network, yes, have like eight or 12 roommates all together, but they do not know each other very well. Everyone is taking the day or night shift, 12 hours shift, including compulsory overtime. You do not even know the name of the one who is sitting or who are sleeping on the upper or lower bunk of your double bunk bed. So you have a sense of alienation or loneliness and your parents are not around because these are the migrants and the dormitory regime itself is just to make you have the labor power sufficient enough to go back to work again. I still remember there were many of them who write poetries or use other social media to share their aspiration. They want to become a singer. They also want to become a librarian at the Foxconn University. There were really big dreams in these young working people. And one after the other, they just found endless hours of overtime work. And there is no union or a trustworthy union they can fall back on. But something that is more subtle, and that is when women uh, who share with me, they have menstruation pain, they have the sense of depression or anxiety about work, marriage, or family, childbirth. These are more gender-specific anxiety, but within these kind of very high-pressure global production atmosphere, 
at the shop floor, there will be just no one who really provide them with the kind of support they need. I, I do refer to social support as well as uh, physical or the well-being. So these are some of the stories that I covered in the interview, but in the broader scenario, that is a sense of mobility. They can get a job in this factory or they can exit the other day. It is a sense of precarious conditions. You do not find a sense of security right here. And ultimately, it is about the use of flexible labor in global electronics production. You only want workers to be right here when it is the peak production season and when you are not needed, you will be asked uh, to go home. So these are the ups and downs the unexpected future they are all facing Mm. Yes, thank you. Wow, what a powerful story. I know in the in the situation that I was involved in, the migrant workers were recruited very strategically. They were vulnerable in many cases. They they were given dreams of, you know, you know, getting a lot of money to support their family and somehow they would be able to go back eventually and and live with their family, but what ended up happening is they ended up getting entrapped in contracts that they could not get out of. And really that sense of entrapment also skyrocketed their despair. Was that also the case in your situation that they were entrapped by agents who lured them in and then got them into contracts that they couldn't get out of? Well, for sure, in China, the use of agency workers or the unfree student interns from vocational schools, these are also teenagers mm-hmm. and who are quite vulnerable to compulsory and excessive overtime work. There are labor law and educational law out there, but it is not really enforcing to protect these young migrants, no matter they are the students or agency workers. Perhaps uh, for many of them, they can actually quit and find another job. But for them, it is just a minor difference between a bigger or a smaller Foxconn factory out Mm. there. So these are some of the deepest struggle these young people's life. They want to experience the modern uh, consumption life in the city. And when they get back home to do farm work like their parents, it is no longer a viable path for many of them. Commercialized, marketized market in both rural and urban areas. So whenever I am referring to workers who have these desperate conditions, it is not just about their weak psychological power. Uh, you break up from your boyfriend, you are in debt. These are the personal or private issues that have been used. So if I remember the story correctly, and maybe I don't, but in addition to the 18 who you know, attempted suicide and the 14 who died, wasn't there a moment where many, many more got on the roof of the building and threatened to, to take their lives as a form of protest? Is that part of the story as well? Yes. Our book, uh, Dying for an iPhone, there have been quite in-depth discussions on these threatened suicide attempts. Uh, they do not really mean to jump from the rooftop, but that is a collective form of protest to catch media attention. 
without media pressure uh, to put Foxconn or the big buyers like Apple under the media spotlight, there won't be sufficient pressure from the bottom up to catch the attention of the public. We already got quite a clear picture about how labor NGOs were being suppressed in China and human rights lawyers also find it very difficult to represent them uh, on the court. So by using their own method, they will block the highway or get up to the rooftop just to have the suicide show to draw media attention. Well, quite luckily, they didn't really end up in uh, losing their precious life. Whether they could attain their goals, it is another question, however. Most of the time, the management will try to put out a fire and to actually dismiss the troublemakers, while the others, they might be brought off to become a manager or a supervisor, and then uh, the protest will which is very short-lived, will come to an end. Many times in China, we have been witnessing this kind of very short-lived collective protests, but I will still see some significance right here. They are accumulating their leadership and organizing experience, and hopefully this is really the long-term driver of change from the grassroots. And unlike other researchers, you were there on the front lines. What was your experience through some of your interviews and your firsthand experience with these with these individuals? Very similar to Sarah's experience, feeling difficult, painful, because as we get so close to each other, whenever they share with me their smartphone, some of them show me their younger sister, the other may show me just a newborn baby that they are separated from. So these are the moments when it is very touching and they are telling me their wishes to get family reunion, to have decent income to support their family. These are some of the wishes. That is why they're willing to put in 10 or 12 hours a day but the high labor intensity and the output demand really make them feeling having headache, eye pain, much so sore, and feeling very bad. Sometimes even do not have the appetite for breakfast. On the other hand, that is the moment while the public concern will take aim at Foxconn. Foxconn is such an iconic or representative uh, corporation. Until 2010, Foxconn was really the only assembler in the whole world for our iPhone and the first generation of iPad. In the past, based on my experience, if we are just taking aim at all kinds of big techs, including Apple, but not limited to Apple, as well as the suppliers, uh, no one really come up to take responsibility. So I would like to highlight that this case study is indeed uh, significant because we are trying to negotiate with the industry uh, that is also beyond the specific production chain between Apple and Foxconn, but that is really an industry-wide phenomenon or the industry-wide problem that we have to tackle. And that is exactly in the 
production thing, the buyer-driven model that pressed workers on the front line are very, very hard and difficult. Mm-hmm. Yes. We found that too, that when we talked about well-being, people that we were interviewing also located their suffering in their body in some way, headaches, body aches, that kind of thing. And they were, the talk about mental health was very foreign, didn't land well, but talking about their their overall well-being was a way that we could talk a little bit more about what they were going through. Your comments about, you know, that this is going to be a trend that the world is going to need to reckon with is a, is a really important one. And so I'm going to turn it back to, to Sarah for a moment about her reflections on this particular case study at Foxconn, as well as, you know, what does this mean for the world as we get this globalized workforce trend, which is going to continue to grow and maybe be continuing to exploit areas of the world where the labor is less expensive to increase profit margins. I don't see this going away. How can we protect these workers? What what does this mean? Yeah, thanks, Sally. And what I think is interesting is that so much of what Jenny has said and so many events and themes that she she talks about just resonate with what happened in, in France in that I think it is very much partly to do with the the decline of trade unions, the, the fact that people feel that they no longer have a voice through, through conventional channels, that there isn't a sort of workplace representative that they can go to, that people aren't listening. And I think in the case of Fra- uh, France Telecom, it was because people felt desperate. They felt that they had no other way of expressing their rage. And unfortunately, this sort of anger in some senses was internalized and turned against themselves. And I think that's a really dangerous phenomenon, you know, and, and you know, almost using their body as a weapon, weaponizing their, their body as a, as a way of, of communicating. And, and we don't want that. So I think part of the answer is is to make sure that workers have a voice and that those collective structures are there and, you know, that there are ways to express and ch- channel grievances in the workplace. That's absolutely fundamental. But I think I also feel that the tide is turning in that we have we are no longer maybe I'm being optimistic. We're no longer in the phase of rampant global neoliberalism in that people are beginning at last to understand the detrimental effects of that model and the idea that we have to we have to put the human being back into the center of things that it it can't just be about profit if it's just about profit well where does that end where does your profit end and you know what about the rights of people what about their lives i mean you know work isn't just about you know the you know extricating profit at whatever cost and work is at the very center of our social identity of our sense of belonging in the world. So I think that is fundamental, but I do believe that the tide is turning in that there is growing opposition, there is growing awareness of the detrimental effects of global capitalism and global neoliberal globalization in a way perhaps that there wasn't 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah, thanks to in great part uh, the work coming out of of the UK and these and these two very important, very large company case studies. That one article that I'll post in the show notes from the conversation talked about you know the soul is put to work and and this idea that 
As my colleague Sarah Gear says, soul exhaustion starts to occur when you just feel like you're a cog in the wheel of someone else's profit making or someone else's achievement and that your mm-hmm. contribution to that doesn't matter. And therefore, maybe you don't matter. I mean, part of it is anger and rage, but I think the other part is, you know, who am I in the in the mix of this? And do I really matter? Do you see that as part of the equation as well? The sense of worthlessness that I'm just a disposable part of this massive machine well it's very important to point out the bodily pain and misery they as a first-hand experience the lifted experience and the individualized form of action sometimes take them into the sphere of religion Indeed, some workers have been sharing with us, they try to become like Christian or they the faith followers because they really need the social support, the kind of intimacy, or just to have the painful feelings and contradictions to be a little bit believe in God, that they have human dignity, that their labor is worthwhile, have the respect when they are labor to produce useful items for all of us. So some of them are indeed trying to get the shelter or refuge in a religious uh, sphere. Too much comment on this, but at the same time, I'm really hoping there would be external institutional intervention and that is fundamentally to change the enable empower workers to get their collective platform to voice their basic human needs. So that is also another more direct way to change the pattern. Otherwise, I sometimes would also feel a little bit optimistic, especially in current times. It is not at all opening more space for cross-border organizing from within mainland China. It is indeed shrinking uh, the space of support. And whether I would also feel a little bit more optimistic than yes, because there are researchers and brilliant decisions makers as well as the concerned audience, the experts or the professionals who are joining hands to figure out what kind of support will be needed, for example, for the left behind children or for the basic housing in the city on top of the basic social securities. So these are some of the important dimensions that I would like to highlight. Otherwise, if every solution is really pinned down to the personal or individual level, that is not making structural change in a broader scale. Great points. Yes, really speaking to the dignity of the workers. Go ahead, Sarah. Sorry, Sally, I was just going to come back. You mentioned the the idea that the soul is put to work, which I think is very interesting. And actually, there's a book. It's the title of a book by Franco Berardi, The Soul at Work. Sort of the idea that nowadays it's not just work is no longer just an external activity. We're increasingly required to put our thoughts and our feelings into our job so that it's, you know, we have to devote our whole selves to the job that we're doing. And then that becomes 
that can become dangerous because if things go wrong at work, we no longer have defenses. We've given our whole selves to our to our job. And in one of the companies I studied in, in France, in the, the French postal services, they were workers who were working with the public in, in, in post offices were measured on their smile. They were given a score out of 10 on the quality of their smile mm. and on their emotional engagement with the customer. So the idea that work is, is, is invasive and it's calling on the intimate resources of, of the self in a, in a way that it shouldn't be. It's intruding on, on, on the person. Some theorists talk about emotional labor that require to use our emotions in the workplace. And all of these are, can be quite unhealthy practices because they there's no longer a separation between work and the self. We become our jobs. And that isn't a healthy way to be. We all need personal space. We all need home lives. Emotional labor and how our smile, appearance, or even body shape and so on are being utilized and leveraged in producing just surplus value and profits for big corporations. That is really the great point. Even though in China, these manufacturing workers, they are quite at the back stage. They are not really on the front uh, stage. But the other pressure they are facing is indeed the replacement of human beings by robots, Mm -hmm. by AI, by all sorts of um, Mm -hmm. machines. But this is also not new. That have been raised in Thomas Capital Volume 1 or even earlier than this classic book. But throughout the past centuries or so, things like repeating and accelerating in the sense that the human workers are really troublesome. They are not obedient. obedient. They might get together, protest or strike and take a rebellious action. Just like last year, because of the COVID extreme measures when they cannot even go out from the factory, which is under the closed lift uh, management. That means every day they can only go to the workplace and get back to the dormitory. At one point of time, canteen was also shut down. So everyone is really isolated. And in that moment, at that time of crisis, they broke down. They, They did kind of escape from the factory wall and go back home on foot. So that big headlines are last October and November in China. So for mm. them, the kind of anxiety and the prospects of losing their jobs uh, to robots and machines, that is also another affront on the human dignity, value, and the respect of their job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we might think this is only happening in Hong Kong and China and Taiwan, but it's happening here in the United States as well. My oldest son worked for one of the tech giants here in Colorado, and I think the only reason they were hiring people in mass is so they could say they were being a, a good steward of, of the people here in Colorado, but the job my son was doing could have easily been done by a robot. It was a repetitive motion moving up to down, up to down for eight hours a day. And he developed injuries very quickly and you know, very minimal breaks. It was very, very difficult. And I can, again, just see this 
impacting our workforce more and more as we move forward and our robots and AI get more sophisticated? What does this mean for the human workforce? I want to transition us back to hope. Uh, you were both dabbling in it there for a second, and I want to get us back to what does the future look like? And Sarah, I'm going to start with you, maybe both to think of uh, what are some of the research questions we need to be asking uh, a good chunk of our audience with the International Association for Suicide Prevention or the people on the front lines of doing pretty um, important and rigorous research in these questions. So what are the research questions we need to be asking to get us to the interventions that we need to be doing? And then on the activist or advocate side of things, uh, what are some of the things we should be putting in place in terms of policies, practices, and so forth? So, Sarah, let me start with you. What are your thoughts? Yeah, so I think making these connections across different places is is absolutely vital. It's it's the lifeblood of what's going to change things because we're no longer seeing things as sort of isolated, sporadic tragedies happening in a particular place, but we're joining the dots and we're seeing how these tragedies are, are, are joined up with a larger system. If, if we don't see that system and we don't sort of understand what the structural problems are, we, we can't change anything. We can't do anything about it. So I think making those international connections and you know, increasing this understanding. And, and so many people are, are working in this area and interested in this area at the moment. I think that's that's so important. And Sally, as we've said before, the importance of using international comparison, using countries where there is good practice to shine a spotlight on countries where the practice isn't so good, to sort of name and shame companies and, and governments into improving their, their employment practices. I think that's really, really important. So, But more generally, I think in suicide studies, certainly in the UK, it tends to be very sector specific. So we have people working on suicide in, say, construction, in the fire service, in nursing. And I suppose it's it's really opening that up to the broader picture and seeing the economic structural processes that underpin all of those sectors so that we can understand the underlying issues at hand and that this, this is happening now and it is historically specific and it has to do with the the way the economy is changing and transforming. I've sort of gone slightly off track. I don't know if that's answered your question well, or not. And, and, well, I think the other piece that, you know, I think you're saying here about connecting the dots is that, you know, as, as, a, as a global community, which we are in the International Association for Suicide Prevention, we have an opportunity to bring together the thought leaders who are then also connected to all these networks in their own countries to stand in solidarity for this issue and to you know, look at change on the global level. What does that look like for human rights standards? Maybe, you know, through global partners with the World Health Organization or some other labor organizations. I mean, the things, the picture that you have painted for me, Sarah, is very inspirational. And if we can get there in our lifetimes, wow, I think that's an amazing, amazing change to have started. Jenny, what are some of your final thoughts about where we need to be headed in the future? Right. Having the research agenda that is first and foremost a focus on the labor system, I think that is important. We do observe the capitalist use of migrants, student interns, 
other short-term or contingent workers to fill the production needs. But these short-term laborers by nature would disrupt the friendship and social network and that only drive them to be more isolated. And in some cases, familial or family ties also broken, both or some other problems between parents and children. So these are not only the spatial separation or the production and social reproduction spheres that are disconnect, but we do have to unify them to integrate so that workers could have their family members around in the cities. So this is one direction of so-called urbanization, and which is not just about having migrants right here when they are young and then just throw them back in the rural areas. I do believe that this is not that specific to China, but in many other global South countries as well. So in terms of the imagination for workers' is these workers who are able to define the priorities or the needs and how the particular issues could be addressed and resolved. Definitely, I do not mean the burden is only on the shoulder of the workers. There should be some kind of collaboration between the buyers global buyers and global suppliers as well. But corporate social responsibility, as we all know, that is quite dominated or steered by the needing corporations, but without much meaningful participation of the workers on the ground. So how we are going to shift the power balance, that is also one key area that researchers, as well as another organization, uniting public like sector buyers like church or universities, and we can uh, influence the contracts or to monitor the electronics production supply chain. I do believe that this kind of integration with the civil society groups crucial or essential uh, for long-term change. Mm, so much there to unpack, but really it's about this, the social responsibility that some of these global multinational companies have to the work workers that they're employing to set standards of healthy workspace, not just in the actual work where, where it's happening, but also in their living situations. You described some pretty inhumane living situations for people, giving people opportunities to connect with their families in a meaningful way, giving them that citizenship that then gives them access to all kinds of other resources that they're not going to have if they're just considered migrant status. All of these things seem doable. I mean, they don't seem far-fetched. They seem like reasonable suggestions that, again, we can all work towards as uh, what our expectation is in, in part of being part of this global community. Thank you both, Sarah and Jenny. You are incredible global leaders in this space. Really, your, your work and your vision is changing how the world thinks about this. And I am just so grateful to have the opportunity to chat with you and to share some of your ideas and conclusions and aspirations with, with our global community together. 
Thank you to the International Association of Suicide Prevention for all the work that you do in bringing us together and elevating our conversation around what's possible in suicide prevention, intervention, and postvention. Until we meet again, take care.